my wife advertised on Facebook a mom panel that's going to be coming up this Friday. I'll announce that again at the end. But on this post, she uh, challenged moms to go in and find a GIF or GIF, wherever you land on that, and type in the word mom life and then pick the one that most identified with their stage of life. Now, I went through, if you, if you know her on Facebook, you're welcome to add your own. I was cracking up as I looked through them. I picked out three that I feel like I could identify in dad life, in my stage of life. Uh, uh, first off, when, you're, when your baby's asleep and your toddler, you finally get them asleep and your toddler busts in the room. Who's been there? <laughs> Two, what it's like to clean up with children present. <sighs> this, is, this is real life. And then three, when you're finally just ready to let your kids duke it out themselves. Now, what's, what's interesting with, with, with all of these is, uh, you know, I can look and, well, well, that's clearly not me, not my life, not my kid, not my particular situation. At the same time, it does express the condition of my life in a pretty concise, powerful, albeit comedic kind of way. As we look at, and the reason I started there, Deuteronomy today, we see Moses speaking to Israel about their biggest problem, about their ultimate solution. And while we aren't them, you were not rescued out of Egypt. You did not go through the uh, wilderness for 40 years. You are not camped out at the edge of the promised land. Nonetheless, as we look, and while not as comedic, we can still glean and learn as we see Moses expressing something to Israel that at the same time, really does speak to our own condition as well, to our problem as well. And mainly, we will see that after giving the law that God, he gives the people the law and it's to set them apart, to set them apart from the nations and other things that we'll get into. In these two chapters we find ourselves in, 29 and 30 today, we see in this epilogue that God makes, his, makes it clear that the people can't keep the law. They can't do it on their own. And that the kind of change that they need is ultimately going to be heart change. And we can relate to that, can't we, in the world that we live in? Pray with me for a moment. Lord, I ask that you would bring clarity, that you would bring confrontation and encouragement, that your words wouldn't stay on the page, but Lord, that as you say in your prophet, you would write them on our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first point today, which was up there a moment ago, is this. You can't do this. We're going to see that throughout chapter 29, that this undergirds the chapter. You can't, and I'll add, on your own. And this simultaneously is one of the most defeating and yet encouraging things that we could hear, and we'll get to why as we go through this together. Deuteronomy 29, we're going to start in verse 1. If you're new to the Bible, Deuteronomy is at the beginning. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And God's people are waiting to go into this land that's been promised to them for a long time. And Moses is, is kind of rehashing out, reaffirming, restating the law that had been given to his people a time ago. These are the words of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in the land of Moab, in addition to the covenant he made with them at Horeb. 
Now, even though this is verse one of chapter 29, it's actually closing out all the covenant stipulations and blessing and curses that have come before it. So you, you had the same words used at the beginning and the end, it kind of as book ends. And so closing that up, we're moving into what many call the, an epilogue in Deuteronomy, starting in verse two. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you have seen with your own eyes everything the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials and to his entire land. You saw with your own eyes the great trials and those great signs and wonders. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a mind to understand, eyes to see, or ears to hear. Just want to point out God doesn't have any problem all right, with his agency here, okay? But two, as we look at the people and their issue, this is a people that had seen God part the sea, okay? And in their hard-heartedness and the callousness of their heart and their inability to see and their inability to truly hear, they still made idols to worship with the golden calves. This is a people that saw God bring them out of Egypt and yet still grumbled and complained about being hungry in the wilderness. They didn't know where, what they would eat. This is a people with a problem. And the first thing under this kind of, the first sub point is, is that the truth is they were, and what the scripture is getting at, incapable from the start of actually seeing, of actually understanding, of actually realizing. You see, God gave them the law, and we already went through that, but that law couldn't be kept. Again, eyes were blind, ears were deaf, hearts were callous and hard. But why spend chapter after chapter after chapter, which we've done in this room, reaffirming the law to Israel to come to this very moment and say, you've seen all these things. And again, after giving the law, only to remind them how powerful God is, but how powerless they are to truly get it. How powerless they are for it to truly sink in. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit. But first, I want to answer a different question, which is this. How is it that the hearts came to be callous in the first place? How is it that spiritual eyes came to be blind, that spiritual ears came to be deaf? And the answer to that question is sin. Now, this is important because we both inherit sin and we choose sin. And both of those things are simultaneously true. Sin entered the world through one man. We have Adam and Eve. We have inherited the corrupted desires from those who have come before us. But at the same time, church, we choose it. It is like having someone born with a genetic illness and yet chooses and pursues a lifestyle that makes that sickness worse and worse and worse. That's the condition of sinful nature. That's sin. And the default posture of the sinful position is one that does not want God. It does not desire God. Sin doesn't want anyone else in charge. Sin does not want to surrender. Sin doesn't want to admit fault. Sin wants to do what it wants to do. And that means leaving pain and sickness and broken relationships, devastated families and all sorts of untold suffering in its wake. But then back to the first question, why give the law if it can't be kept, why? We're gonna to get to that pretty deeply in Galatians in a few weeks. But for now, I'll leave you with, a, with an illustration. I want you to think about the driving age law. What does that accomplish? And depending on where and when you grew up, that law may have been 
15, 16, 17, maybe younger. Some of you might have been driving a tractor at age eight. I don't know. But go with me for a moment. That growing up here, you know, a 12-year-old can't get in the car and drive on the freeway. Why? What does that law accomplish? Well, first, it tells the 12-year-old that they can't do it. They do not have what it takes to do so responsibly and safely. Two, it protects both the young driver as well as others, keeps them safe. And three, it tells them if, for instance, a 12-year-old wants to go somewhere and gets in the van, they have to wait for someone who can do it and be obedient to the laws they do. What does the law do that was given by God to the people of Israel? One, it tells them they can't live a perfect life on their own. Two, it limits injustice in the world. Three, it points them to Jesus who can keep it. Israel given this law and the truth is that what we see laid out in chapters 29 and 30, it requires them to do some waiting. Continuing on, verse 11. I skipped down to verse 12, sorry. So that you may enter into the covenant of the Lord your God. He gives all, all, all these instructions so that, so that you may enter into the covenant of the Lord your God, focus, which he is making with you today. So that you may enter into his oath. And so that he may establish you today as his people. And he may be your God as he promised you. And as he swore to your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just want to point something out. He's already made it very, very clear at the beginning of this chapter that they got callous hearts. They can't see. They can't understand. They can't hear. They do not have what it takes. And they come a few verses later and God, who is the one doing the doing? God is the one making, cutting, literally, the covenant. He is the one establishing the people. And this is something that we see all throughout the Bible. This is a theme we see all throughout Scripture, that where we cannot, God can. That oftentimes, he will make it very clear that you cannot, so that he gets the glory when he does. In a, Paul's letter to Ephesus, he makes it very clear that we were in a situation in which we could not, but that fortunately God could. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler, the power of the air, the spirit now worked in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. We were by nature children under wrath as others were also. This is very similar to what we're seeing in Deuteronomy. What, what's the condition of people? Blind, deaf, hard hearts. But God, just one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. So you get a lot of terrible situations and then but God comes and you know there's light at the end of the tunnel. Who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us. He made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. This is the God that we worship. The God that can and does when we cannot. The God who split the water at the Red Sea, not because his grumbling and complaining people deserved it, but because he shows up precisely when we don't deserve it. This is the God who defeated the armies in Canaan during the time of the judges. 
Thousands and thousands came and he told them, you go home, I only need 300 men. And he sent them out and they won. Why? Because he didn't want any confusion over who got the actual victory. When God... People, when God's people took Jericho, he just had them blow some trumpets, blow air. He took down the walls. This is the God that came and took on flesh in the person of Jesus. He touched sick people and they were healed. He touched blind people and they could see. He commanded the cripple to get up and they walked. He is the God that can precisely when we cannot. We couldn't live the perfect life under the law, but he could and did. We couldn't possibly overcome the power of Satan, sin, and death, but he could, he came, and he did. And Ephesians says we were dead in our trespasses, and so we were reminded of who exactly gets the credit. When I pick up my two-year-old for him to dunk a basketball, there is no lack of clarity on who did the heavy lifting. If I climb a wall with my child on my back, there is no lack of clarity on who did the heavy lifting. When those who were dead in their trespasses receive life, there is zero doubt on who did the heavy lifting. Continuing on, verse 18. Be sure there is no man, woman, clan, or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Be sure there is no root among you bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. When someone hears the words of this oath, he may consider himself exempt, thinking, I will have peace, even though I follow my own stubborn heart. This will lead to the destruction of the well-watered land, as well as the dry land. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him. Instead, his anger and jealousy will burn against that person, and every curse written in the scroll will descend on him. The Lord will blot out his name under heaven. Some of that language is very strong, and if you find that confusing a little bit. Gary addressed this deeply last week, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that. But what we have going on here, he's already made it clear. He's he's rehashed. So this is, we've gotten the law. He's rehashed who he is, how powerful he is. He tells them, you can't do this on on your own. He makes it clear that he's the one that's going to establish the covenant. And then he gets very personal And what I find fascinating about this is so much of the Old Testament is very corporate. It's promises made to a corporate people. It's a lot of, if if you were in the South, it would be a lot of y'alls. And here, he gets very specific and particular for the individual. You are not saved by your group. He says it in this text. Some people will say, I have peace, even though I follow my stubborn heart. But there will be someone who thinks to themselves, I'm a part of God's chosen people. What does it matter? I'm good. Doesn't matter what I do, what I think. Doesn't matter what I love. I'm safe. Every person who grows up in the church eventually has to choose what they are going to love. Every person who grows up in the church has to choose to whom they are going to surrender. Your parents cannot save you. Your church cannot save you. Your Bible study group cannot save you. Your prayer partner cannot save you. That's not how this works. Everyone has to make that choice. And let me just say, as a pastor, I'm, I'm currently four kids deep on the parenting scale. And I struggle to get my kids to surrender to me, let alone Jesus. 
And sometimes I will ask them to do something and just be straight, just do it. And other times I will spend the time explaining what and why, why it is good for them, only to ultimately get that rebellious, stiff-necked, no. The things that are just the sinful things that you, that you want to you, you punish your child and you just, that's where you ask for the grace of God, right? You're like, Lord, help me parent this child. Well, guess what? The adults in this room, many of us have done the exact same thing to God. God calls us people to be sacrificially generous and they say, no. God calls us people to purity, no. God calls them to edifying speech as opposed to gossip or slander. Nah. God calls us to be patient and to be gentle. I'd rather be harsh and angry. No, thank you. God calls us to tell other people about Jesus. It's too uncomfortable. No, thank you. God calls us to love him and love others. Mm. No. Let me break this to you. Coming here, singing songs, and listening to some guy talk for 30 minutes does not make you right with God. And don't hear what I'm not saying. Community is a good thing. Bible study, prayer partners, all that stuff, that's a good thing. But putting on a jersey doesn't automatically make you a fan. And showing up doesn't automatically make you a follower. Paul makes this very simple. He sums it up very concisely. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. But that's between you and God. It's not about where you were raised or who you're worshiping with on a Sunday. Now you can imagine with all of this, the Israelites getting a little confused. You gave us a law and then you told us we can't obey it. And then you told us to make, you're going to make this covenant, but then you singled out people who aren't going to be saved. What's going on? And then at the end of this chapter, God gives probably our least favorite answer ever. The hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever so that we may follow all the words of this law. God reveals things truly to his people, but he does not always reveal them fully. There's a big difference there. Job 11 taps into this a little bit. Can you fathom the depths of God or discover the limits of the Almighty? Tapping into the fact that in our finitude, it is difficult for us to comprehend the infiniteness of our God. The truth is, don't we want to know? Don't we want the answers? When we're suffering, don't we want to know why? It's not just about what he's given to the people then. This has been the condition of humanity ever since. When we contemplate God's being on this side of Jesus, this idea of the Trinity, three persons, one God, don't we want to fully understand? The list goes on and on. You could ask all sorts of questions that we seem not to have particular answers to. And if we do have answers, sometimes we're just not content with them. And yet God is perfectly okay living some things a mystery, almost as if he'd rather us spend our time and our energy on other things. Pretend with me for a moment in this illustration. You can imagine waking up to a busy Saturday with lots to do. There's a birthday, errands, housework, 
For me, growing up, Saturdays always began with a few hours of chores. So every Saturday, we woke up and we had, we had to clean, we had to, we had to mow, we did all the outdoor stuff. I could just imagine taking my son outside with the lawnmower. He's not old enough yet, but oh, that day's coming. And explain to him how to start it, how to stop it, how to clean it when he is done, and where to mow. I could offer those instructions. And then leave to go do something else. After all, there is a lot to do and not a lot of time. I've given my son all he needs to do what he needs to do with the time that he is afforded. He does not have full knowledge of everything having to do with this lawnmower. But he has true knowledge according to his age, maturity, and the task that has been given to him. Perhaps he's an inquisitive child. Knowing that it works is not enough. He wants to take it apart. He wants to know the names of each part, how they connect, what it is that makes the blade spin. Those aren't bad questions. They are just questions that must be reserved for a different time. There are things to be done and precious little time with which to do them. You and I have been given truth from God in a task along with that truth. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. We ask hard questions along the way. But at some point, we have to be willing to trust God that some questions must be reserved for a later time. That some things in the present will be left a mystery. And becoming comfortable in the midst of mystery helps shape us into patient, trusting people. Point one, you can't do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. But as we pivot into Deuteronomy chapter 30, we see that change is coming. We see that true change starts with heart change. And this chapter is all about heart change. Deuteronomy 30 verse one. When all these things happen to you, the blessings and curses I have set before you and you come to your senses while you're in all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul by doing everything I am commanding you today. Again, he's made it clear they can't do this. He's talking about a day when this kind of change is coming. Then he will restore your fortunes, have compassion on you, gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. He makes it clear blessings are coming, that along with the change that's coming, that blessings are coming. But this statement forces a question. This brings us just into more confusion. How in the world? You just told us we can't do this. You're going to say it again later. Now you're telling us a day is coming in which rewards for doing it. How is that possible? Well, he answers that in verse six. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants and you will love him with all your heart and all your soul so that you will live. We see true change starts with heart change and hearts will indeed one day change. This is a promise that is threaded throughout the Old Testament as people deal with the, with the consequences of their hardened hearts. That God tells them change is coming. Jeremiah 31, instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Ezekiel 37, one of my favorite images in the Old Testament, valley of dry bones. Can these bones yet live? The bones being God's people. That's the picture given. 
And in verse 7, it says, So I prophesied as I had been commanded while I was prophesying. There was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. As I looked, tendons appeared on them. Flesh grew, skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. Say to it, this is what the Lord God says, breathe. Come from the four winds and breathe into these slain so that they may live. In this picture of where there was once death, there will again be life. Some take these promises as being made particularly to corporate Israel, pointing to a day in the future, and this would be a glorious day in which the Jews, God, John chapter 1 says, his own people who rejected him will one day in mass by hundreds of thousands or millions turn and understand and worship and believe and receive their Messiah. That would be amazing. But it also speaks to the condition of our own hearts Cold, dead, callous, rebellious hearts. And when Jesus came, he told his disciples that he would have to leave. Why? So that he could send someone else, the Holy Spirit. Why the Holy Spirit? Quick lesson on the Trinity. Because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have different roles. This is overly simplistic. If you're a theologian, I get it. But this is safe, so follow me. The Father sends, the Son does, the Spirit applies. Okay? Five-year-old says, what's the difference between the three? That's what you say. The Father sends, the Son does, the Spirit applies. The Father sent Jesus to die on the cross. Jesus obeyed and died on the cross, rose from the dead. But the Holy Spirit applies that victory in the transformation of our hearts, minds, and lives. And so all of these promises made in the Old Testament of life coming, of heart transformation coming, was fulfilled when at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit began to pierce hearts. We have access to that transformation now in the present. Israel didn't have the Holy Spirit, but you and I do. And that allows for what we see in verse nine. Deuteronomy 30, verse nine. Then the Lord your God will make you most prosperous in all the works of your hands and the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock and the crops of your land. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous, just as he delighted in your ancestors. God will delight in his people. God does not merely justify his people. He does not merely sanctify his people. I don't know if this is a real word, but I, I'm using it. He beautifies his people. Justification is a big focus in the Protestant church that we stand before God justified. And that, that means declared not guilty. So that... When you stand before God in judgment, he will see whom you trust. And if you spent your life trusting Jesus, he will see Christ's perfection. And if you spent your life trusting you, he will see you. And when he sees Christ, you are justified. You were declared not guilty. Sanctification is the process of the, over the course of your life by which the Holy Spirit makes you more like Jesus. But to steal a word that I've heard a number of other pastors use, beautification is the adorning of Christ's bride, the church. That as we continue to fail and sin, confess and repent, lean into the power of the Holy Spirit in the context of a gospel-centered community that Jesus the groom truly and unequivocally delights in his bride. His relationship with you is not just based on the law, justification. It's not just based on holiness, sanctification, but rooted in a genuine and unwavering affection for you. Ultimately, a delight in 
you. And there are people who come into the church who have those first two on lock in the way that you relate with God. You understand that your sin is forgiven, that you have been justified. You understand that you're, you're working on holiness and cooperating with the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. But whether it's because of things you've done or things done to you, there is this sense that you are merely simply just not pleasing to God and there is a distance between you because of it. That your relationship is rooted merely in justification and holiness, but not in affection. And that's why we have to remember, he came to die for you. Why? Because he loves you, that we may love him with all that we are in response. Jesus says, almost skipped a verse, never mind. I'm getting ahead of myself. Jesus is going to say something in a moment. We'll get there. All right. Our final verse, Deuteronomy 30, verse 10. This just flows right out of nine. When you obey the Lord your God by keeping his commands and statutes that are written in the book of the law and return to him with all your heart and all your soul. That is the end goal. That returning to him. It's repentance, turning from the life you're living towards your God, your creator, your king, your savior with all of your heart and with all of your soul. God is not meant to be merely powerful in our eyes, but also precious. It's not just powerful, but precious. Jesus says in Matthew 22, I told you I'd get there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. And many of us, again, God is the powerful one who rescued them out of Egypt. God is the one who took down the walls of Jericho. God is the one who overcame Satan's sin and death. God is the one who you've seen provide for you in amazing ways in the past, but he is not someone that in your world you would consider precious. He is not a prize or a treasure. This week as I was thinking about this, idea. My wife, she took the three of our kids out to do something and I was left at home alone with my two-year-old and I made a goal in 2023 to take each of my sons on a father-son date however many times. And so make this little checklist. I was like, all right, I'm going to take my two-year-old out while they're out. And fortunately he's two, so it was a cheap date. <laughs> so we, we split a small fry at McDonald's, <laughs> which he loved. And so you know, we, we go back and forth and, and we were spending time together. And at the end, I'm feeling, you know, I've, this is on my mind. I'm feeling sentimental, get a little, a little deep. You never know where that might go with a two-year-old. But I, I'm just, I started talking to him and, and I say to him for the first time in his life, I think he's ever heard me utter these words. I said, Quinn, do you know that you are my treasure? And when I said it, a big grin popped on his face. And so I started talking to him about this and I repeated it in a couple different ways. You know, God has gifted you to me and, and what it means for him to be my treasure. And then after all that's done, even though he can't really talk well, I, uh, I, I asked him, do you understand what I'm saying? And, and he nodded his head with a grin and, and, and I said, well, what does that mean? And he just made two sounds. He said, dada R. Now R is how he says the word pirate. Out of that whole situation, what he took away is that he's my treasure, which makes me a pirate. 
Now, regardless of his response, everyone in this room understands what I was communicating to my son. And I think for many of us in this room, you have never shared moments or it's been a while in which you've had a moment like that with God. In which you truly reflect and go to God and you treat him not as king, though that's great, not a savior, though that's great, but that your time with him would truly be rooted in just how precious he is to you as opposed to what he can do for you. There's a difference there. God wants to be the precious one that we love with all of our heart and all of our soul. So one, we can't do this on our own. But where we can't, God can. A group can't save us. That's between us and between God. But God is the one that paves the way for that change. And true change starts with heart change. And when we experience that heart change, God is not merely powerful. He wants to be precious. And so throughout this week, I would challenge you to think on that. Is God merely the one you go to for his power or is he truly precious? Pray with me. I thank you for this morning, God. And we we'll just wanna echo what was said earlier that again, you would challenge us that where rebuke is necessary, we would be rebuked. Where comforting is necessary, that we would be comforted. God, I pray for healthy conversations and Lord, reflection throughout this week, that you would, you would seal truths on hearts and on minds. God, that you would work in and through us. Help us to be beacons of your light and love in this world. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.